Hey, it's Danielle. Did you know that our favorite badass retired GBI agent, Fran, was recently featured in a documentary on Peacock? That's right. Cocaine Bear, the true story, is streaming now, and we would love for you to check it out. All right, enough of the plugs. You guys enjoy the episode. I'm Danielle. I'm Fran. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Hey there, Fran. It's great to see you this morning. Good morning, Danielle. Um, we're getting back into part two today of our namesake episode, Snow in the Mountains. Thank you again, CB Hackworth, for the ingenious name. Um, you know, since we recorded part one, I was thinking, you know, Fran and I live in a small town in North Georgia, and I live in a historic hundred-year-old little farmhouse here in one of these tiny, cute little towns, and. I was thinking about how when this house was first built, um, I know that that family had a bit of generational wealth. They were able to build several homes in this area that are all designated historic. And I was kind of giggling to myself because I was thinking, I wonder how much moonshine they bought (laughs) from some of these people uh, in the family lineage of the folks that we've been discussing on the podcast. So it's just, it never ceases to amaze me talking about local history, how um, how close it can be to us, even if history has passed. So, you know, an interesting little tidbit for your day, Fran. Thank you for that. I um, have refreshed my memory, which is kind of a rare uh, novel thing these days at my age. <laughs> but uh, I do recall now the name of the farmer who had the property uh, that I went to on uh, September the 10th, 1982. His name was George Johnston. And he was a gentleman that noticed his cows were gathering in a, around an odd uh, blue uh, cylindrical object uh, near the, the uh, creek on his uh, property. His property, he lived on a house on the left-hand side of Roy Road, and his pasture and the creek were on the right-hand side. And actually, behind the scenes, Fran and I have been doing a bit of investigative work on a satellite map in order to pinpoint the exact location of where that original parcel was found. So we will gladly share that with you on social media. Um, Again, Fran's, you know, you're not giving yourself enough credit here for remembering these details because you're able to look at a map that is an hour and one minute away from my current location um, from how many years ago? You know, so (laughs) it's extraordinary. But yeah, seeing this location on the map brings a bit of life, I think, and reality to um, the situation. So we're going to get back into the Snow in the Mountains case here um, when we come back from commercial break. All right, Fran, take me back to the scene. We're back in 1982. And what's going on? Well, again, the sheriff uh, at that time was Berman Stanley, and uh, he was the sheriff of um, Gilmer County, which is LJ, Georgia. And he had called the office uh, to say that a farmer, this Mr. Johnston, had found uh, something in his pasture. And um, so uh, I went over there. I was a case agent on this case and uh, went to the area. 
I was actually by myself that particular day. And uh, we went out to the pasture and picked up the canister and put it in my trunk. And I think said earlier that we'd never seen any cocaine like this, this amount. Uh, it was about 50 pounds. And then um, I went, I did go back up to the sheriff's office that day and told the sheriff I was going to take it on to the crime lab and that we do, you know, further investigation, that type of thing. As soon as I called my office, I uh, told the boss, I said, this had to be an airdrop. You know, we need to check some of the local airports and, you know, call the, call the FAA and at the uh, Atlanta airport and see what else we could find out. So many other agents were assigned. Um, at that time was uh, John Cagle, who's now retired. Uh, uh, Charles King and also Buddy Henry worked on that case. We um, coordinated with another county, Pickens County Sheriff's Office, who uh, was in Jasper, Georgia. We, we sent a group of agents down there to see if a plane had landed there. And um, we, you know, we ended up finding the plane in uh, Dalton, Georgia, which I, I talked about earlier, where the, when they, we opened the door, when I opened the door to the plane, we saw the blue yes. fiberglass on the door frame, which was totally identical with the, with the cocaine uh, canisters that we found in the pasture. So that was kind of, you know, the, the, the thing that made us feel there was more cocaine on the ground and that the that the uh the manpower that we had was not adequate to try to locate it the uh the office supervisor called the you know Atlanta and they ended up talking with the governor he sent out the national guard so um we did find out the uh flight path from uh, the FAA in in uh, Atlanta at the airport so we were able to basically figure up, figure out where the uh, path of the canisters had been thrown out. Um, we, it was funny when we were up there originally, we, we didn't even have phone. We had, that was the first time we'd ever used what they call a satellite phone. Okay. And it was as, it, it was as big as a shoebox. I mean, you could <laughs> actually, you know, use it, but um, to communicate because we were afraid by communicating on the, the radio, the bad guys would hear us because they knew our frequencies, of course. Sure. Let alone so, the phone at the gas station. That was <laughs> yeah. like basically their office. It was their office. So um, we uh, used the satellite phone and we, we did use the radio, but what we did was there were only six of us up there. And so uh, we would, we call us, we, we would call us team one, team two, and we, say, okay, we were team number one. It was just me. I was team one <laughs> and team two would be just one guy, but we wanted the bad guys to think there was like, you know, 20 of us out there yeah, looking for the rest totally. of the canisters. So that was kind of funny, but, um, um, this, uh, particular, uh, group of people decided, you know, that this is, wasn't their first radio. Um, we knew that they were, you know, had contacts in Colombia and that they had uh, picked up the drugs from Colombia. We knew later on we identified the pilot uh, and his uh, co-pilot and that they had been to Quito, Ecuador, and also to Colombia to set up the uh, delivery of the drugs. 
And um, I told you before that the uh, the reason they didn't land in Cherokee County at the Canton Airport was because a trooper had stopped a car, and so they right. got scared and kicked it out. But um, it was a pretty heavily forested area where the cocaine canisters were discovered. Um, you know, it was uh, some of it was national forest further up, and you know, wildlife management area. Uh, I believe that the bad guys would have been able to recover it all if, if the cows hadn't discovered it first, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, so it would have, you know, it would have gone on out on the, uh, on the path of uh, getting it to people's hands. You know, that's a lot of drugs to get into the country. And um, eventually, you know, people would have died from that and, uh, kids would have gone over overdosed from all that but yeah i i really believe that they've done this before it just you know they just never got caught well sure um you know it seems like you know if there's for lack of a better term i suppose um there's a bit of an art to this craft right um these guys have to take extreme caution and a lot of time to sort of iron out the logistics. And I think if you're even able to line up the plane and get anything into the country, you know, I mean, there's a first time for everything, but if they knew that they had to, you know, reroute and start dumping this, um, they had some knowledge, you know, they, they had a skill set and they were working within that to the best of their abilities. I'm sure it was fairly well honed at this point, if they were able to take it this far. Yeah. Um, we, when we were doing this case, uh, we went to, like I said, several of the local airports looking for the plane. Um, we got a call from the Pickens County airport that said a, a plane had landed. Uh, and we went to that airport and arrested a, a guy that was, uh, had rented a plane. Obviously, he was trying to look for the, the drugs that were dropped, and that was uh, Dan Ayers. And Dan Ayers was from uh, Cornelia, Georgia, and he was one of the co-pilots of the, of the original plane. Um, we were afraid that he was going to, you know, be killed, uh, so we actually put a, put a, um, bulletproof vest on him at his first court appearance because uh you know we thought we we were sure that you know they were going to take him out so he wouldn't testify sure yeah. um we didn't know how big or widespread this was but uh we didn't know what would happen and then there was another guy by the name of eddie holt um he was kind of the flunky guy. He was kind of the go-getter, ground-proof guy, and he would do whatever Bud Cochran would say. Bud Cochran was the kingpin. He was the older guy. He had served federal time. He was actually the man that had the connections. Um, so he was the he was the ringleader. And then I talked to you about Melvin Stevens, and Melvin fled. Uh, he he was not captured until even after I retired oh, in wow. two thousand. Yeah. He was gone a long time. And um, so the majority of people went to trial and were, all were convicted. Uh, and I think Melvin was convicted in absentia. Um, the, in the original court appearances, you know, people were heavily guarded and all that. And uh, the, the pilot, Dan Ayers, was held on a million dollar bond at the time. Wow. One of the things that um, 
we wanted to ensure was that um, we made the public aware that um, this was not something that was just a flash in the pan, that this these types of things had happened before. And if they had any evidence of such that they should, you know, please come forward and let us know. Well, we were able to get more information about Eddie Holt. And that information resulted in us going out to this barn uh, in Gilmer County. And in the barn, it was set up just like a laboratory. Uh, from the outside, you would have thought the barn was going to fall in. And that's exactly what it, they wanted it to look like. You uh, wouldn't have known it was there. It was in a very secluded area on a dirt road. And um, we, uh, we went out there after we found out about it, of course, after getting a search warrant, identifying the property. Sure. And um, what we found was um, this laboratory. When I say laboratory, uh, don't use that loosely. It was uh, tables, uh, stainless steel. There were um, plastic, large plastic. I'm talking about 100-gallon type vats in containers and um, glassware that was huge that that these guys that you thought were just country bumpkins were uh, taking this powder cocaine and um, manufacturing it into a liquid. Now the liquid looked like caro syrup, looked like just like clear caro syrup. And yes. over in another part of the barn, they had boxes, there were cases that were um, contained um, uh, individual corrugated, um, I guess you'd call it like a container in a container where you would put sleeves of 16 ounce plastic containers like shampoo comes in. Okay. It was like that. And the uh, what they would do is they would make their caro syrup and they had labels labeling it. It was spa, like for spa treatment. And uh, it was scented with eucalyptus oil on the top. So they would load the liquid cocaine into these bottles. Okay. They would then scent it with eucalyptus oil on the top. So if the customs opened it up, that's what they would smell. Okay. Never in your life would you have thought the customs would think it was anything but that. Yeah. I mean, I... I don't know what it would smell like without the eucalyptus oil, but you did mention in um, our first episode of the cocaine bear show that um, that the smell is extremely pungent when this is pure and uncut. And that is probably what attracted the bear to it. So um, yeah, I mean, that's brilliant to be able to mask the smell. I, I hate to use the word brilliant, but I mean, it seems like again, the, the creativity and sort of the, the art of the criminal mind is boundless, really. Oh, yeah. So this, um, these 16 ounce uh, containers, you know, they would be uh, put into cases, they would be labeled, and they were shipping it to California. So all that information, of course, you know, as, as a small Georgia agency, we couldn't fly to California follow up on those leads. So we turned all that information over to customs and to the DEA and they followed up on that information out there. So it was a pretty elaborate, um, a unique um, way to distribute 
And I don't know of another case. I've never heard of another case in the country that, where they did something like that. Obviously, they learned it from somewhere. <laughs> so sure. uh, it'd be interesting to hear if anybody out there has ever had another case like that. Well, let um, me tell you, in anticipation of today's episode, I put on my big, thick, nerdy glasses that I always wear. See, aren't they cute? They're nerdy. Um, and my lab coat too, because I did some research on how this whole process happens. And while I don't have a lot of science behind it, because I mean, come on guys, I don't want to give you guys all ideas for how you can <laughs> distribute your own cocaine, but, um, I'll tell you a little bit about it. So I want to start by telling you that the global drug trade, um, is valued currently at 450 to 750 billion dollars annually. And I'm sure that number doesn't surprise you when we said at the at the start of this series, this episode that the cocaine you found in this Snow in the Mountains case was valued at a half a billion dollars and that's just one one circumstance. Um one that was, you know, part of a bust. So imagine how much gets through that these agencies aren't able to to find. But in the year 2013, Peru actually dethroned Colombia as the number one exporter and producer of cocaine. So I thought that was an interesting fact for you too. But um, the way that this works kind of is that apparently cocaine can be dissolved in a variety of solvents to produce a liquid form, uh, which will allow later conversion back to powder. Um, again, I don't know the exact science behind it, but it is true. This does happen. Um, and in fact, in an article that I read, and I will be able to reference that for you in our show notes, it was from insightcrime.org. But this is something that was first reported what per this article in 2011 when 13 kilos were seized in the Bolivian department of Santa Cruz on the border with Brazil and Paraguay um they do suspect of course that this technique was likely used for some time previously in Colombia without being detected but you're telling us about a case from 1982 recent articles online are saying that this was not you know, widely reported this method of transportation and distribution until 2011. So the criminals that you took down, Fran, were well ahead of their time. Um, sort right. of adding to that <laughs> allure of brilliance mm -hmm. in what it was that they were doing. Now, a few other things to note is that um, liquid cocaine um, has different radiological properties than powdered cocaine, which makes it harder to detect uh, going through airport security. So we all know drug mules will swallow or insert um, balloons, as they're called, of drugs, you know, and carry those through customs to be able to travel with them in their bodies, which is incredibly dangerous. I mean, one of these balloons explodes and, and that's it for you and the product. So it is a risk for both the distributor and the mule themselves, but it's not uncommon still to this day for people to transport drugs in this way. And um, unless there was like a CT scanner 
um, in the airports, there's no way they'd be able to catch everybody doing this because when it's in its liquid form, it um, more closely resembles something you would see in the human bowel. And so it's harder to detect on the regular airport scanners. Now, what I did find about this conversion process, um, so you've taken the powdered cocaine, you've liquefied it for distribution and transport, which actually seems like it could be um, more of a challenge in some ways because a liquid is going to be heavier than just these powdered kilos. But I understand that they have to disguise it, you know, in order to get it from point A to point B. Um, one obstacle that these drug rings had to get around and sort of just swallow as part of the business was that around 10% of the product can be lost in the reversal or decantation process um, to convert the liquefied cocaine back to a powder. So um, there's my little lab coat. Uh, I'm sure they were willing to, to lose that part of it just to ensure the safety of it getting from point A to point B in sure. uh, disguise. Yeah. Absolutely. But very interesting. Um, and then to scent it with the eucalyptus to sort of further that disguise of going on to spa treatment centers. I mean, it sounds like this was a, a pretty professional operation. Yes, it was. There was, uh, you know, none of us ever thought we'd be uh, carrying out uh, 50, you know, 50 pound uh, canisters on our backs out of the woods in LJ. And, uh, you know, to find stuff like this was, we were just kind of amazed that, that this would even happen. You know, we knew that in the um, South Georgia area and then in a couple of places in North Georgia, um, especially in South Georgia where it's flat, they would land planes on some of the two lane roads, you know, big planes. I'm talking like, you know, Lockheed Lodestars and DC-3s when marijuana was being imported back then. Wow. But, How um, brazen. Yeah. So it's uh, it was very uh, common for us to see the bigger planes, but not the smaller planes with a bladder tank and that kind of quantity of uh, of cocaine. But uh, we we used to joke about it, saying that you know it's uh, the the moonshiners have gone from white liquor to white powder now. So yeah, that was the joke. A lot of people get, uh, get a lot of people get this particular case confused with the uh, earlier episode we talked about the cocaine bear, but no, the bear did not get into this one. Only the cow. Wow, um, mm -hmm. and I want to clarify um, because this is just such an interesting sticking point of the case for me. The gas station that you've referenced uh, with oh, yeah. the, the payphone <laughs> that was sort of their office. This is on Highway 52 and Roy Road in LJ. Um, this gas station was owned by the sheriff of Gilmer County, correct? Correct. And it was actually his son who was part of this operation bringing the drugs in. So, I mean, without pointing fingers at someone who you know, may not have been involved. Is it to your understanding or your belief that, you know, his dad, the sheriff had any knowledge or involvement in this? I mean, what an awkward conversation. Hey, sheriff, your son has been picked up for bringing 550 pounds of cocaine into Georgia. That's correct. I think his father was, um, probably had the blinders on 
Sure. I think that uh, his son was probably doing a, a lot of stuff that his father didn't know about. And his father was not a, um, you know, he'd been there a long time. He wasn't exactly a um, well, fine, well-tuned law enforcement officer. And the only, the only example that comes to mind is, um, and I say this in a uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, is uh, one of the agents told me that worked over there after I worked there and said that um, the sheriff had a uh, gentleman at the jail, because you got to understand that this sheriff had been there for years and years. Primarily the sheriffs deal with the jail, common problems, mostly alcohol, uh, some drugs at this time, not a lot of drugs like we see today domestic problems so not not really big issues not not murders you know maybe some suicides but just everyday run-of-the-mill maybe a burglary here or there but this county wasn't really that sort of county but it's a the sprawling me, county but not a huge population no, not, and not real, i mean not real serious problems yeah and, and i mean now it's a fairly touristy place but you oh, know yeah. i'm trying to picture ella j 30 years ago and and to me it seems like it would be quiet and peaceful and uh, a tight-knit community you know mm-hmm. when you know people and oh, yeah everybody knew staying everybody. in their lane well it was common you know for sure to take in a lot of drunks and people that had mental illness problems but sure. uh, the, the agent that was that that I was working with had gone over there to uh, that county to do something on a case and he he called back and he says you're not going to believe what happened he said uh, the sheriff had taken a guy from the jail put him in in the patrol car behind the cage had taken him to um, another county to a, a mental hospital for evaluation got the um, wheelchair out of the foyer got the man into the wheelchair he thought the man was just asleep well the man was dead okay no way he just left the man in dead in the chair and drove off and -uh. like yes i mean it's like really (laughs) so that's kind of the mentality you were dealing with over there at the time wow and um, i just thought how appropriate this is this this guy is like sleepwalking with a gun. Right. Well, and I mean, yeah, it's, this is a big deal case. I don't care what size your town is or where you are. I mean, 550 pounds of cocaine worth a half a billion dollars. That's big time. And so for such a small jurisdiction like Gilmer County, you know, I mean, you, it's, you gotta, you gotta keep your head on a swivel, I think. And, um, it's amazing that it could even get this far, but really, here we yeah. are. Yeah. Cocaine sprinkled like snow in the mountains, really. It's amazing what can happen in a quick commercial break, Fran. Uh, we've got roosters crowing. We've got um, my cat pawing at the door. Apparently garlic bread wants to be a co-host on the show now. I've gently turned her away because my attention now is fixated on wrapping up this case and I'm so interested to know more about Garland Bud Cochran. That's right. Um, Garland Bud Cochran started his career uh, in moonshine, of course, and he was probably one of the biggest um, sellers of moonshine in North Georgia. 
he was when he was in his 20s he was taking six to seven thousand gallons of moonshine from uh lj yummer county with other people that were um transporting it into atlanta uh by tractor trailer that's a lot and then he graduated from that he went to south carolina and they, he uh was involved in the dc3 uh, in uh, near Columbia, South Carolina, where they offloaded uh, several um, hundred pounds of uh, marijuana that came in from Columbia. He was indicted in U.S. District Court in South Carolina on that case. But um, he was, a, I guess you would say, a drug entrepreneur. He, uh, he was uh, a businessman, you could say, of sorts, always looking to how to make that extra dollar in a fast way and uh, an opportunist he, oh yeah and he had the uh, he had the charisma of being able to develop these good old boys that were loyal to him and uh that's something kind of uh an unwritten code of conduct of these people is you know uh, you, you get to play the game with me but uh, their code was, you, you shall not snitch to the police, because if you do, you're dead. Well, so. yeah, and that's that's sort of the cost of admission, I suppose, when you look at, you know, anything from a large scale mafia operation to, you know, even like gangs um, in like a more traditional sense, I guess. But, um, you know, they bring in younger people who maybe are a bit wayward or, or need a path in life um, and sort of prey on that desperation and that need for a community, a family, you know, and, you know, they, they're in turn given opportunities uh, and, and safely kept as long as they keep their family safe. That's right. The, uh, the main re ringleader of the uh, Dixie mafia down here in Georgia was uh, known as uh, Billy Sunday Burt. He was notorious. Um, there's much to be written about him. And uh, another podcast was out, as we discussed earlier. And uh, he has been known to have uh, killed at least 50, murdered 50 people in his lifetime. Well, that he's, definitely he's constitutes now. a serial killer. Oh, yeah. Uh, other people that were involved with him was a guy by the name of Bobby Jean Gaddis. Uh, Harold Chancy, uh, Billy Wayne Davis, he was from Cobb County, along with uh, Garland Bud Cochran and Ben Cade, we call him Junior Tatum. And Junior Tatum was from Dawson County, or Dawsonville area. But um, when the, in the 1980s, um, in the early 80s, when, this, when, they, when he got indicted, uh, when Bud Cochran got indicted in South Carolina, he became a fugitive on the uh, marijuana importation case on the, the DC-3 that came in over there. And so he became a fugitive and he went to, many believe he went to South, South America and started really organizing what would later become what we found in LJ and in Gilmer County, the cocaine importation. Wow. Um, so... Um, like I said, these are these guys were kind of a loosely knit uh, criminal organization. They traveled around. They called each other. They performed services such as you know burglaries, robberies, 
uh, you know, theft and of course murders. So um, one one part of uh, one part of this, which is interesting, was um, it was in 1983. There was a case that was being going to be tried against um, Harold Chancy in Winder for uh, uh, several murders. And again, he was part of the Dixie Mafia. And uh, I was assigned with another female agent to protect his girlfriend. She had decided to uh, testify against him in the murders, and she was a critical witness, as we would say. And uh, we uh, picked her up, traveled her to an island off the coast of uh, Georgia, and uh, we kept her, housed her, fed her. She had a son, and a, uh, she had two sons, an older son who was in his teens, and then a younger son who was about five years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that boy was alleged to be the son of... Uh, of um, this man that she was going to testify against. So um, it was quite a uh, interesting experience for me because I uh, got to learn from her uh, how it was to be part of that side of the Dixie Mafia from a female's view and why she did that, you know, why sure. she entertained that lifestyle with him and had a child by him, of course, out of wedlock and all that. Sounds horrifying, really, to sit and wait for fate to unravel and knowing that what she can bring to the table is going to cause a domino effect for so many people. I mean, I can't imagine the just sheer terror of waiting. And imagining she, she could she couldn't live a normal life whatever her normal was that that sure passed because you know we would have to uh go into the grocery store she of course wanted to buy own her own type of food and she's a great cook old country southern cooking and uh we we would go in and she'd get her grocery cart and we'd buy the food and she would come come back and you know fix a big meal kind of make her feel at home you know sure to cook and that type of kind of keep a normal existence but it, it felt very unnormal for me having grown up on the beach myself to you know get up in the morning take her, her and her two sons to the beach for the day to try to get a mental escape from what was going on but here I am packing you know a, a, a not a mini 14 but you know packing a several guns in my beach bag which wow. was really kind of uh, unusual I, so, uh, but, I mean yeah. that's a that's a side of your duties as a special agent that I never really considered was, you know, the, the sort of witness protection and, you know, I mean, not only are you protecting her, but you're trying to make sure that her and her family don't flee. Right. That's right. And try to keep her in a good mindset so that she would continue to do what, you know, she had, had uh, promised that she would do testify. So that was a, that was really important. Another and, uh, reminder that it's eventually did that. not a victimless crime, you yeah. know. Garland Bud Cochran, born February 13th, 1929, passed away young at the age of 64, January 12th, 1994. He 
you said in his twenties was running the moonshine. So we're talking, you know, the fifties and um, after his indictment in South Carolina goes off the rails into perhaps South America and comes back around in the eighties as part of, you know, this whole cocaine importation operation in Gilmer County. Um, it wasn't long after that, that he passed away. So was he prosecuted in this snow in the mountains case or did he get away yes, once he, again he was prosecuted and he did serve time um i don't know if he if he died in prison or if he got out he actually lived in a gated community in gilmer county on a mountain there with his wife and um but he did get i think he got 20 20 or 25 years for this back then they, were, they didn't face a lot of time because it was still a kind of still unique situation yeah interesting well so bud's ties to the dixie mafia i think are going to take us down a winding path um and that's another story for next week another story about somebody doing something wrong um we appreciate you guys listening to this episode wrapping up our namesake snow in the mountains until then, we hope that you will continue to listen, um, like, follow, share, subscribe. It helps to support us and our podcast so we can keep bringing you some more interesting stories from Fran's evidence room and her old case files. So Fran, thank you so much for sharing this story with us today. Certainly appreciate your perspective. It was another wild ride through the mountains of North Georgia. Thank you, Danielle, for your research and your patience and all your understanding and all this that we've done together I, I appreciate everything that you've done and I hope our listeners are um will keep listening and know that this is the reason that they we're, do, we're doing this is that so many cases are have been um destroyed paperwork wise and that there's a lot of this that actually comes back around you know so we need to keep it in the forefront that you know drugs are bad crime is bad a lot of evil people in the world. Yeah. And it's not just about the crime or the people involved. It's about how these stories have shaped the face of our local history and um, what the state of Georgia is today, you know? Very true. Well, thanks again, Fran. We'll see you guys next time. Bye for now. And please behave. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Find us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Your listens, follows, likes, and shares help our show greatly and are much appreciated. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 